Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to LawPod, a podcast produced by staff and students in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast. Today, we are looking at the concept of innocence and miscarriage of justice in the criminal justice system in the UK. Joining us, we have Hugh Southey QC, who is a practicing barrister in England and Wales and Northern Ireland. He's based at Matrix Chambers in London. Uh, he also sits as a recorder in England and Wales and a judge of the Grand Court of the Cayman Islands. Thanks for joining us today, Hugh. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Hugh, the concept of innocence in the criminal justice system, um, I'd like to start with a quote from uh, Lady Hale in the Adams case in the Supreme Court in 2011. And Lady Hale said that innocence as such is not a concept known to our criminal justice system. Um, and I wondered what your thoughts were on that. In many senses, it's obviously right, I think, is my immediate reaction. Um, and the reason I say that is this. If you look at the criminal justice system in a narrow way, in other words, if you look at what the um, adjudication process in the Crown Court, for example, is focused on, Innocence is not a concept that that is ever applied in that system. Um, as everyone's well aware, you have to be uh, proven guilty beyond reasonable doubt. Um, and so the court can consider or the jury can conclude you're um, probably guilty, but that's not enough. And indeed, um, juries are generally told um, um, something similar to that. Um, however... In reality, the way our criminal justice system has developed and become more complicated means that there are um, aspects of it that are that sort of fall outside the classic adjudication process. Um, so, for example, there are um, uh, systems in place to manage the risk of offending uh, by disclosing. Uh, details of someone's um, alleged criminal behaviour, even when they haven't been com convicted. Uh, and in that context, innocence potentially becomes relevant. Um, uh, it, it, you, you talked about the Adams case, and that's probably the clearest area where innocence becomes relevant, um, because uh, the English system, and to some extent the Northern Irish system, uh, have adopted a test of innocence when deciding whether people should be compensated uh, uh, when they're um, acquitted and shown to have been the victim of a miscarriage of justice. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, we're, we're going to be touching on uh, disclosure sort of briefly. We're going to be touching on miscarriage of justice more substantially um, as well. Uh, but is, is it fair to say at this point that um, when talking about the criminal justice system, or at least the 
kind of mainstay of the process of, of dealing with criminal prosecutions. Innocence really, as a presumption, acts more as a sort of fairness safeguard to people accused of offenses going through the system rather than having any sort of substantive place within that system. Yes. I, in one sense, during the, even during the adjudication process, the presumption of innocence, uh, as it's called, is perhaps, um, could be said to be a misnomer, because in reality, what it, what it, what it is actually um, um, referring to is um, the need, essentially, for uh, prosecutors to prove beyond reasonable doubt. And mm-hmm. um, and I, the reason why I think it, it may be potentially thought to be a misnomer is I think when properly understood... Uh, that need to be proven guilty beyond reasonable doubt has to be understood as meaning you can be quite likely to be guilty, but that's not enough. And uh, I, I think there's, there are dangers sometimes in the criminal process in sort of uh, losing sight of that by referring to innocence. Yeah, because ultimately the focus is on the standard to which the prosecution have to prove the case. Otherwise, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so... Um, Given that it substantively um, within the adjudication process and and as we will see uh, through this episode, um, some of the elements in miscarriage of justice, um, substantively innocence as a concept isn't defined by law. It doesn't exist within that sort of process. Um, I wonder now if we could get into a little bit about the exploration of the facts um, in Adams and some of the issues in Adams. And of course you acted for Mr. Adams in the Supreme court. Yeah. Can I, well, can I just sort of perhaps start by taking a step a little bit back from Adams, just to put Adams Mm. in context, the international covenant on civil and political rights, article 14, six provide that there is a a right to uh, compensation uh, where, and this is the language of the provision, when a person has been, by a final decision, been convicted of a criminal offence, and when subsequently his conviction has been reversed or has been pardoned on the ground of a new or newly discovered fact which shows conclusively that there has been a miscarriage of justice. That language is uh, complicated, and one of the problems with it historically has been, it seems to, in one sense, um confuse two different concepts one is the need to show something conclusively now that might be said and, and indeed has been argued historically by uh, the uk government to mean that you need to be shown uh, to be innocent um because showing conclusively suggests that some sort of high standard of proof is required. However, the fr- the phrase miscarriage of justice might be thought to imply something different in the sense that miscarriage of justice can be said to occur whenever the criminal justice system goes wrong. I mean, to use to put this in context a little, uh, the Adams case was concerned with a situation where 
um, uh, the conviction was quashed uh, largely because the uh, trial representation was poor. Um, there were also issues about um, disclosure. Now, those sorts of things should not happen. You, you should be, you should get high quality representation. You should get adequate disclosure. If that yeah. doesn't happen, you might be said to be the victim of a miscarriage of justice. Um, and what Adams fundamentally was about was about trying to resolve those issues and determine who it was. Uh, who was entitled to compensation. I mean, the government argued effectively you had to be innocent. Uh, we were arguing uh, it was enough that your conviction was unsafe. And what what, was, what the um, Supreme Court did was sort of go somewhere in between that, um, adopting a, a test yeah. which involved you having to demonstrate you, you, you couldn't have rationally been or reasonably been convicted. Yeah, so let's, let's unpick how the Supreme Court viewed... Uh, Mr. Adams, and of course, the, the, there were three individuals um, whose appeals were conjoined in that case. There was there was Adams, there was uh, McCartney, there was McDermott, and McCartney and McDermott were the two Northern Ireland cases. Adams was from England, um, and all three of them, the Supreme Court viewed in the same broad category of cases relevant to the discussion of miscarriage of justice, but there were important distinctions between them. And I wonder if you could sort of take us through the different categories that the Supreme Court thought would be relevant to sort of conceptualize miscarriage of justice. Yeah, no, absolutely. Firstly, uh, I mean, the, 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 the Supreme Court identified, particularly in the judgment of Lord Phillips, if, if I remember rightly, four different categories of case where there was potentially a, a, um, a claim. One was where everyone agreed uh, compensation would be payable, was where fresh evidence showed th uh, clearly that um, a defendant was innocent of the crime which they'd been uh, uh, convicted of. The second was that the fresh evidence said uh, demonstrated rather that no reasonable jury could convict. That was the category that the Supreme Court also accepted gave rise to a right to compensation, but the government disputed. Uh, um, the third category was that um, the fresh evidence rendered the conviction unsafe, um, and that was uh, what Adams was arguing for because he accepted he was in that category, not category two in light of findings that had been made by lower courts yeah um uh, 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 and then the fourth category was where something had gone seriously wrong in the investigation in the offense um uh, or the conduct of the trial which resulted in the conviction of someone who should not have been convicted and uh, i mean that to be to, to explain that category um uh, there was, was an earlier case called Mullen, uh, and Mullen was someone who undoubtedly did the criminal uh, act that was alleged, um, uh, but shouldn't have been convicted because there was quite clearly an abusive process. He'd, he'd been uh, unlawfully and informally extradited uh, into the United Kingdom. Um, and it, because of Mullen, it was ag agreed by all the parties that category of case uh, didn't entitle someone to uh, compensation 
albeit, I, I think before Mullen, there was a sensible argument he should have been uh, entitled to compensation because, again, if you apply the language of miscarriage of justice, he was a victim of miscarriage of justice. He'd only been convicted after a process that should not have taken place. Yeah, and I'm I'm interested to explore this a li little um, further as well, the, the sort of difference between, you know, miscarriage of justice that is sort of heavily focused on innocence, which is successively where legislative reform has tended to go towards yeah. um, for compensation purposes, and miscarriage of justice in the broader sense that the actual system has failed, uh, the yeah. person going through it as the person being accused of an offense. Um, and the, the distinction, um, is rather in interesting when you, when you think of the, the way in which Adams on the one hand and McCartney and McDermott on the other hand were categorized by the Supreme Court. Um, of course, in Adams, as you said, he, he accepted that he was in the third category. Of, of the four category uh, approach by the Supreme Court and McCartney and McDermott fell into the category where new evidence undermined the cases that had been made against them by the prosecution at the time that they were convicted. Um, and the new evidence tended to suggest that they should never have been prosecuted to begin with or that the trial judge uh, would not have convicted them. Um, and that was the evidence relating to police assault um, at the time that both McCartney and uh, McDermott were arrested and at the time that they both confessed. So what I find interesting, and I wonder if you might um, tell us your thoughts on this, is that the point at which the new evidence had undermined the convictions of all three people, the fresh evidence that was relevant to both Adams um, and McCartney and McDermott was relevant to different parts of the mm. criminal justice process, the adjudicative process, and in fact, beyond the adjudicative process. So for Adams, it was during the trial itself because the unused evidence could have aided the cross-examination of the key prosecution witness. And for McCartney and McDermott, it was the decision to prosecute at all because the statements that they made, their confessions, might have been coerced out of them. So I wonder, do you think there's a consequential distinction between McCartney and McDermott on the one hand and Adams on the other hand when we're trying to understand uh, miscarriage of justice as a concept? I think the, what Ad, the, the the distinction between Adams and McDermott probably shows most clearly, which is possibly a slightly different thing, but not totally unrelated to the point you've just made, is that in one sense, our courts are not terribly good at uh, sort of trying to second guess the significance of uh, fresh evidence beyond sort of the basic task they have to perform when they allow appeals, which is thinking about whether or not um, a conviction is unsafe. Now, there are issues about whether or not they're any good at doing that. Um, 
you could argue that there is an institutional reluctance to um, find that uh, fresh evidence undermines a conviction. But but then to have to apply the sort of distinction that was they needed to apply on the basis of the Adams judgment, I think is is quite difficult actually for them. Um, um, I think it logically, I'm not sure it makes very much difference where the w- at what point in the process the evidence was relevant. If the test is applied literally, the Adams test is applied. The question becomes: uh, Could ultimately the, the the defendant have been reasonably convicted? Uh, I just think that's a difficult test for the court to apply, and it will end up. Um, making what may be, may seem to be distinctions that are difficult to, to, to justify. Yeah, because reading Adams and, and, and in terms of trying to, uh, especially at the Supreme Court level, trying to um, clarify legal principle in, in, in a way that is clear, in a way that is sort of certain, um, in a way that's accessible um, uh, throughout the UK, it seems that there might be an element of subjectivity in deciding, you know, certain kinds of evidence have a certain impact on a previous conviction that seems greater or lesser in comparison to other impacts. But there's no, seemingly no objective justification for making those distinctions kind of concrete. I think that's I think that's right. I, I think it I think whenever you have fresh material, even in the appellate system, when you're challenging a conviction, from a judge's point of view, it's going to be difficult to assess the impact of that fresh material because the judge has an imperfect picture. They don't and they will be working from paper records of what happened at the trial, so they won't really have a, a, a direct way of assessing the impact of the, of the evidence uh, of the witnesses, rather who gave evidence live. They then have um, some fresh evidence. They may have heard that orally. They may not have done. If, but even if they've heard that orally, um, trying to fit that in to as I say, a, a, a trial process that they weren't part of is inherently difficult. Now, I think my own in, in sort of instinctive view, uh, it's difficult to prove that this is objectively correct, is that it is easier to, the, to, to carry out that exercise where you are asking, it, it, would this potentially have made the conviction unsafe? Um, because in one sense, in those circumstances, what you can do is, if you like, uh, uh, adopt the most favourable analysis of the previous evidence, the trial evidence from a defendant's point of view, and then see how significant um, in that context this new evidence would be. Um, uh, Trying to work out uh, whether or not the defendant could reasonably have been convicted when you don't you, you don't really have that direct in, uh, a sort of uh, uh, benefit of having seen the oral evidence at trial. 
is is going to be is going to be much more difficult. And I'm not sure the system is very well set up to do that. Yeah, um, there was a there was an interesting um, sort of comparison that was made as well by Lord Kerr in Adams when talking about the sort of inability of the criminal justice system to assess innocence or even make findings of innocence and, and the, how inappropriate that would be in this forum. And there was an interesting comparison to New Zealand that he made that the New Zealand Law Commission suggested a specific tribunal um, to actually make a finding. Um, and I wondered, do you think that it's the, 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 the court might be aided by having a specific sort of statutorily established forum where you can sort of hash out arguments or, or do you think that actually rehashing what was the original trial might on principle be a bad idea? I think as a matter of principle, it is not a great idea other than to the extent it's unavoidable. And it's obviously, because people shouldn't be wrongly convicted, it's obviously unavoidable that you have to look at the trial process to see whether fresh evidence undermines the conviction by making it unsafe. But beyond that, and any of the, any of the tests sort of that were proposed by the Supreme Court other than the one that was argued for by Adams involves going beyond that. Um, it, it involves fact-finding that I just, I think whoever does it is going to be imperfect. I'm not sure what benefit you, you get from having a specialist judge because they still won't be in a position to understand the impact of the oral evidence that led to the conviction. And in, in terms of the sort of strength of the evidence that led to the conviction, of course, following the Adams case, um, the test for yep. miscarriage of justice compensation um, changed pretty significantly um, from what it was in Adams, which I yes. mean, the, the sort of category two case of, of new evidence undermining the conviction um, was further restricted yep. to new evidence demonstrating that the person trying to claim compensation never committed the offense. Um, and yes, I wondered if you might sort of, because when you talk about the, the difficulty in assessing the original evidence, sometimes years down the line, I mean, how much more difficult must it be to actually prove innocence? I, I think for, 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 from a defendant's point of view, proving innocence is going to be in many cases, impossible. Um, there, I mean, it, it's not. It, in one sense, innocence is perhaps an easier um, concept to apply if you're a judge than um, uh, the, the the category two that we've talked about. The category of cases where um, uh, no jury, reasonable jury could convict because the reality is the innocence cases are going to be the ones where there's, for example, DNA or something like that. You know, there, there is a, there is a distinct category of cases where no one disputes that the offender who actually committed the offense, um, for example, left, uh, DNA, uh, uh on the, at the scene 
And if DNA testing proves that the individual uh, developments in DNA testing proves that the, the individual who was convicted uh, was not uh, the person who left that DNA, then you can say positively that that, that person is innocent. So, so there is a, a category of cases where in one sense it's relatively easy because there is an absolutely um, central piece of evidence and you can prove you're not the person who was responsible for that central piece of evidence. Uh, but from the point of view of a defendant, if you're not in that very discrete category of cases, proving you're innocent is almost impossible. I mean, the, 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 the sort of you know, the run-of-the-mill criminal case is not going to be one where there's a sort of decisive piece of DNA evidence. It will be the sort of uh, case where you know, there are a number of, say, witnesses who say what uh, they saw you do something. You might well be able to undermine their evidence by demonstrating that, for example, um, they, they had a motive to lie or they've recanted on their evidence, all sorts of things. But positively proving then it wasn't you it's very difficult because what you what you do is you knock out the prosecution evidence by doing that sort of thing. You don't you don't put forward an alternative theory and uh, proving innocence in that context is, is is likely to be extremely hard. And so, for the vast majority of people who've been subject to a miscarriage of justice, I I would expect it becomes impossible to prove innocence. And I suspect there are very few from everything I've heard. There are very, very few successful claims for compensation now. Yeah. Um, in, in, in terms of claims for compensation and the, the sort of broader understanding of miscarriage of justice that you um, initially sort of discussed in, in terms of the system failing an individual trying to, uh, trying to go through it, um, I wanted to sort of briefly look at the, the way that miscarriage of justice compensation um, was seen as in intersecting with the presumption of innocence in in Adams. Because there, there, there's a part in Lord Hope's judgment where he says, the refusal to provide compensation actually doesn't affect the presumption of innocence because it doesn't undermine the acquittal of the person. And while that might be true in one sense, in a sort of formalistic sense, um, acquittal isn't the end of the journey for that person. Um, they have to then reintegrate into society and 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 try and and um, access employment, access various services. Um, the impact that it might have on on their mental health, the impact it might have on their relationships with other people. And so, I wonder to what extent, you know, is, is it first of all to to what extent is the presumption of innocence in that context just a highly formalistic one? But also secondly, to what extent does it have to be a highly formalistic one? Because all of this post-acquittal social circumstances and social impact is not possible to be taken into consideration by the courts at that time. Yeah, I think just as a sort of, as a sort of a preliminary remark, I'd say that the current state of the law, and I'll try and distinguish between the law and my own personal views in relation to this, is a bit of a mess in relation to um, 
the presumption of innocence and particularly it's a bit of a mess in relation to the presumption of innocence in this particular context. Um, the Strasbourg court um, in a case called Allen, Allen the United Kingdom um, indicated um, and seemed to state this as a matter of general principle uh, the presumption of innocence means that where there's been a criminal charge and criminal proceedings have ended in an acquittal, the person who was subject uh, of the criminal proceedings is innocent in the eyes of the law. It must be treated in a manner consistent with that uh, uh, with that innocence. Now, if you apply that statement of principle, it, I mean, it seems to me that to refuse someone compensation on the grounds that they are um, not truly innocent or can't prove that they're truly innocent um, uh, is inconsistent with that statement of principle. Um, however, even in Allen, the Strasbourg court adopted a uh, more nuanced approach um, and indeed rejected compensation in, in, in that case. Um, essentially because of the way in which the uh, conviction had been quashed. Um, there's been a certain amount of argument about what what, what was actually decided in Allen. But, um, so that others may disagree with that analysis, but that's my understanding of what uh, how it was approached. Our domestic courts, particularly the, well, the Supreme Court in, in uh, Hallam and Neelam, um, has adopted a completely different approach, which is to say um, that uh, the presumption of innocence has very little impact, essentially, after you've been acquitted. And uh, the presumption of innocence didn't really apply um, to uh, claims for compensation after acquittal. All that was prohibited, essentially, was um, a public authority suggesting positively you should have been convicted, um, which is obviously a fairly un usual thing to happen. So we're, I think we're in a bit of a mess. My own view is that if the, if the presumption of innocence is to mean anything, following acquittal, you should be treated as innocent in all, all respects. And refusing to pay compensation on the basis that you can't prove you're innocent is inconsistent with that. Yeah, because of course, um, Halliman Nealon is currently in the Strasbourg court um, and the law reform group Justice are intervening. Um, in in those proceedings, and Justice in 2018 did a very detailed report into the impact uh, of kind of reintegration of society once you've been once you've been exonerated um, by the criminal justice system. That you know you could spend however long in in prison and and try and come back, and the impact that this has, um, and the the complete shock that it delivers. Uh, to try and um, uh, reintegrate, um, having this hanging over your head that, oh, I was acquitted, but actually I can't get compensation for that because I'm not the right kind of innocent or I'm not innocent enough. Um, and so I wondered to to sort of go back to um, the first question that we explored in this episode and the, the concept of innocence in the criminal justice system. Should the law try and develop an, an, an actual meaning? Because it seems to me effectively that innocence has a place that is 
not just socially relevant, but in, in some respects, and especially in miscarriage of justice compensation, effectively legally relevant. But that doesn't seem to have an agreed definition. Well, yeah, I'm not sure I would agree that it, it that, that there's not an agreed definition. It, it, well, actually, a better way of putting it, it, it is that I think at the moment we're in a situation where there is an imposed definition of innocence. Uh, and I say imposed because uh, it effectively is a statutory definition um, in terms of mis in terms of compensation because the uh, provisions of the Criminal Justice Act that govern uh, applications for miscarriages of justice um, does clearly define what is meant by innocence and it adopts a very narrow meaning. Um, so I think personally, I think that the, if you like the 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 first uh, perhaps the most pressing issue, rather not the first issue, the pressing most pressing issue is a political one, which is I think politically it is not desirable that that um, you should have to prove your, your innocence for the reasons you gave. It 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 doesn't facilitate your reintegration into society. Um, more generally. I think there is a need to resolve, and this probably will involve further litigation in Strasbourg, how the presumption of innocence works. Um, as things stand, it isn't uh, clear how the presumption of innocence works. And that has implications not simply in terms of compensation. Compensation is an important part of it, but it has, for example, implications, as already indicated, in terms of uh, disclosure of criminal records. Um, the fact you've been acquitted um, uh, can be disclosed, uh, even though it's difficult to see why that would be relevant unless it is to suggest you might in fact have been guilty even though you were acquitted. Um, so I think Strasbourg, and it probably needs to be Strasbourg given that the Supreme Court looked at it in Hallam and Neelan, needs to grapple with what the Supreme Court said in Hallam and Neelan and tell us whether that was wrong and tell us how, uh, as a result, innocence needs to be protected. And I suppose implicit in that, what is innocence? Is innocence simply, uh, as I would argue it is, your conviction being set aside, or is it something more nuanced? To what extent do you think, because the, the state of domestic law around innocence, insofar as it is defined, um, and, and insofar as it applies uh, in the criminal justice system, there is a bit of a disconnect between the legal concept of it and what might be understood in sort of broader social contexts. And to what extent do you think it's, it's necessary to, when you're talking about innocence and when you're talking about um, the impact from a legal perspective, to sort of take the social view of it, the sort of everyday view of it into consideration, because that is the view that someone exonerated will have to be up against. Well, uh, my own view is that I'm fundamental to a lot of human rights uh, litigation, a lot of human rights judgments is the idea that the law will protect the 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 unpopular the um, minority who who are seen as being lacking in rights 
and this is an area where that's true. Um, unfortunately, our approach to criminal justice means that 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 there are parts of society, parts of politics that 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 assume uh, people who've been before the criminal justice system are likely to be guilty, even if they've formally been acquitted. And in the criminal adjudication process, we're pretty good at 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 protecting that and saying actually the system has to proceed on the basis that unless it can be proven beyond reasonable doubt you're guilty, we will treat you um, as innocent. Other parts of the system have seen that eroded. Um, and uh, my, my view is that law needs to uh, protect that, not um, accommodate it. But I, I, I think partly because of the way in which parliament has approached it, it, it has been accommodated, that, that sort of... Um, view of the majority um, uh, uh, that um, a lot of people are in fact guilty when they were acquitted. Thanks very much, Hugh. I think we will all see what happens with Hallam and Nealon in Strasbourg with interest um, and, and see if Strasbourg finally uh, really takes the sort of domestic conceptualization of miscarriage of justice in the UK and, and says something definitive about it. Um, Thanks very much for uh, talking to us today, Hugh. Um, it was a pleasure discussing uh, what was a very, a, a very complex, very nuanced, but a, a very impactful topic, I think, on many people. Um, so thanks very much for coming today. Thank you for having me.